Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of Iraqi Voices. This is your host, Hassan Haddad. Iraqi Voices is a podcast that showcases authentic perspectives and insights about current developments in Iraq. Iraqi Voices is produced by 1001 Iraqi Thoughts. Ruqayya Azzuddin is an Iraqi Welsh author whose 2018 debut book, The Watermelon Boys, won her the Betty Trask Award in 2019. It is a work of fiction told around historical events in both Iraq and Wales during the First World War. I had the pleasure of reading the novel earlier this year and wanted to learn more about the motivation for writing it and what it means to be an Iraqi author. Thank you, Ruqayya, for joining us today. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Thank you. I want to start by asking what motivated you to write this novel and if you can describe it to those who have not read it yet. Um, the Watermelon Boys is set during and after the First World War. As most of the audience probably know, the British had promised Iraqis independence if they fought for the British against the Ottomans. And so we follow our protagonist, uh, who's an Iraqi father, Ahmed, who sees his city becoming less tolerant under the Ottomans and decides to join this British-led revolt against the Ottomans. We obviously know that the British didn't deliver on their promises to grant independence to Arabs. So when Ahmed discovers this, it creates some difficult repercussions, not just for him, but also for his family. And there's also a secondary character called Karwin, who is a Welsh soldier, a reluctant soldier, who ends up enlisting and... His path eventually crosses with Ahmed. He fights in Gallipoli and ends up in Egypt and eventually in Iraq. And as to what motivated me to write this book, it started off, the very first idea I had for it was when I was running once and um, it was after my grandfather, my Iraqi grandfather, Jiddu, so I'm ethnically half Iraqi and half British. And so after he had passed away and I was recalling a couple of the stories that he had passed on to us, from his childhood, very slightly after this period that I wrote about, um, stories that his father had told him. His father had been a soldier in the Ottoman army. And actually, my mother's grandfather had also been a soldier on the British side. So that was a, that's an interesting kind of, (laughs) not quite a coalition, interesting conflict between the two sides. So what started off as a very different idea, which was originally going to be stories from many different Iraqis, many different, inspired by many different stories within, uh, sort of from within my family, but more from the diaspora and then would, would kind of come together with Jiddu stories, ended up being entirely inspired by these two particular stories that Jiddu had passed down to us, which are kind of bookends in The Watermelon Boys. So the very first story um, is pretty much the opening scene where Ahmed is running around Baghdad and he can't remember who he is, how he got there, what's going on. And that actually happened to uh, Jiddu's father. And the second story that was inspired by something Jiddu told us was actually very historically significant um, and I've still not found any evidence of what he and his father participated in, in any historical, non-fictional context. Um, so I don't usually go into what that specifically was, and you'll have to read The Watermelon Boys. <laughs> Message me to find out what it was. <laughs> Sounds good. Um, and and we'll, we'll get to the recommendation soon enough, uh, because it was an excellent read. Um, your novel is, is very focused on Iraq during uh, a difficult time. 
uh, it is the final years of the Ottoman Empire. Uh, as you said, the British had arrived with promises of liberation. Um, and, and we see that Iraqis are caught in the middle. Um, could you please describe what the atmosphere was like in Baghdad during the 1910s? So obviously this is my interpretation of history. I wasn't actually there for the 1910s, thankfully. So with that caveat aside, I would say that the atmosphere that I was most interested in and I felt like I learned the most about was towards the latter stages of the 1910s and even 1920 during the Arab revolt against the British. So towards the end of the 1910s, say 1919-1920, there was this overwhelming narrative on the part of the British that Iraqis and Arabs and that kind of ethnic mess, beautiful mess that was Baghdad at the time, were incapable of ruling themselves, needed a strong arm to He did a strong, violent arm to rule over them. And even they use the term guardian. Uh, so they saw themselves as these guardians for Iraqis. And that gets me to the atmosphere, which in the build up to the armed revolt against the British, um, there was this real like, even even when, when you read his, historical academic accounts, you can like, this is this palpable atmosphere of revolt rising and this spark that's like just waiting to be lit and to, to, to burn. And the British had sold this revolt as very disorganized, as uh, savages just wanting to wreak havoc and violence and not actually a, a movement of independence and autonomy and self-determination. So what was described as uh, semi-civilized in reality was very organized. You had almost this kind of celebratory buildup to what later became the armed revolt with Shia and Sunni meeting in one mosque to discuss how they were going to send diplomatic envoys to the British to discuss the specific codes of this revolt, of what was permitted and what was not permitted, of trying diplomacy before trying armed resistance. And so what was actually very, very nuanced and kind of elegant was sold as this savages who who just want to have violence and who don't know what they want and, and don't know how to rule themselves. And then when the certain events sort of slipped into place that pushed the revolt from unarmed to armed, I won't use the term peaceful because I think that doesn't have a place in this conversation. In fact, it was this multi-sect movement had formed a diplomatic envoy to go to speak to the British and to show them their demands in a diplomatic and peaceful manner. And uh, when they got there, they were just read a statement from a piece of paper that had already been released to the city of Baghdad and um, were turned away and their, their demands weren't heard. And so this is just another indication of that rejection on the part of the British of Iraqi Arab efforts for self-determination in a strategic and structured manner. And so there was a second envoy that was sent, this time with the son of the Grand Mujtahid, who had kind of been the religious figure. He was a Shia leader. He was the religious figure who was sort of moderating the advancement of this resistance. And um, his son was among the envoys, and he was actually kidnapped and sent abroad and exiled. And that was that That was the moment that the floodgates opened and the, the Grand Mujtahid gave his Uh, permission for the revolt to turn into armed resistance. And for a while, it seemed like that the revolt, the Arab revolt would win. And so they, that enhanced this atmospheric celebratory air that 
you know, there was kind of this hope that had not, that hadn't been there before. So that shift from unarmed to armed resistance brought a lot of success for the revolt. They were able to target, having learned the act of sabotage from the British, they were able to target trains and uh, supply lines and really have an effective sabotage of the, the British military operation in Iraq and it seemed it seemed like this tide was turning in their favor and that that victory was inevitable and that really impacted this kind of celebratory air up until the British introduced aerial policing and aerial bombardment and took the fight to the skies and really quashed any hope of uh, the rebellion succeeding. Thank you Rukhaya because uh, that that explanation definitely fits with the with the saying that history is written by the victors, um, and and it definitely shows that the the framing that the British had that you know these were savages and you know they they're unable to run their own affairs and that sort of colonial uh, thinking um, showed and and it was uh, really well written in the novel and how that was portrayed by uh by some of the characters uh including a a specific uh british officer um would you be able to please describe what it was like to research the history for this era and what stuck out for you about this period of time in Iraq's history um the research was kind of endless in a word i think i researched that period of history for nine months to a year before I sat down and wrote The Watermelon Boys. And uh, I was like, okay, you've done your research, now you can write it. But it was literally every single day I had to research something new. Uh, and I've just got so much random information now in my in my ammo, from like different armoured vehicles to the different flora and fauna that was around in different parts of Iraq at that time. Um, so yeah, it was really this interminable process. And on the one hand, I did manage to find a lot of different resources. On the other hand, I didn't really have access to, or maybe I am just naive and oblivious to the Arabic language accounts of the time. So a lot of the sort of real time accounts were in English. And that was at first a bit frustrating but actually turned out to be a really interesting way to view it to to look back and see not only how Iraqis were being portrayed at the time but also to review the internal communiques between the British office in the British office in Baghdad and what they would say to their superiors in London uh, for example in 1923, the British bombed this one village. Actually, it was six villages of one tribe called the Bani Hashem tribe. And they bombed them for not paying taxes to the British. And honestly, when I found out about this, I was just astounded. Well, not really, I mean, shocked, but not surprised, I suppose we could say. And it wasn't even really an act of revolt. I don't know whether that makes it better or worse. It was simply that the tribal leaders couldn't get their tribe to agree to pay these taxes for financial or for um, ideological reasons. We don't know. So this was communicated to to the colonial office in London, and they also sent an RAF plane overhead to kind of to inspect the damage. And 
they advise that they vastly underestimate or underreport the damage as like six sheep being killed rather than a hundred. I think it was about 106 people being killed um, in order to placate the British public. So we some, often we think about, well, we look back at history and we judge it with a modern eye. But even at that time, British intervention in Iraq was unpopular and hard to justify, especially with the the financial cost. Uh, but also, as this communique proves, because of the ethical cost. Um, so the point I want to come back to is the thing I found really quite fascinating about reading about this period of time from the British perspective was the duplicity. And the duplicity, despite the fact that it was the Arabs and the Iraqis who were cast as savages, who don't know how to deal with diplomacy, who who can't be trusted and who are spineless. And yet you have the British not only bombing people, but also underreporting it because they know how it will be perceived. And there were a lot of acts of duplicity of undermining attempts for autonomy or even attempts to just schools. So they were allowed to set up these schools. And there was one school that I read of in particular, where which actually does feature in the Watermelon Boys, uh, well, some fictional iteration of it where it was pitched to the British, because obviously needed, they needed their permission, as, you know, just a school for boys. But in actuality, they used it to <laughs> train them to be uh, rebels and gave them the skills to know how to undermine the British. And there is also a bit of a question mark as to how they did that exactly, and I've fictionalised it somewhat. Um, but that was... Quite, I don't know. That was a bit satisfying to read after all the du- duplicity and subterfuge on the other side. It's uh, fascinating, Rukaya, especially uh, as you said the duplicity. I mean, on the one hand, they're they're telling the um, you know the authorities are telling the British public that you know um, things aren't as bad and uh, these are savages and they need uh, guardianship. Uh, on the, on the other hand, they're they're bombing people for not paying up. Uh, your 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 novel focuses a lot on uh, Baghdad specifically, uh, not just as a setting, but as an idea, a concept. Uh, people transcend religious, ethnic, and other boundaries for the sake of Baghdad. Uh, why was it an important theme to articulate for the novel? I think we touched on this slightly in that the perception of Baghdad, both then and now, feels so far removed from the reality. When you hear the, the, the word Baghdad today, it, unfortunately, now it conjures up for most people these ideas of violence and war and oppression and intolerance. And I just felt like maybe it was partly to fulfill some diaspora need of mine but also to address a reality that okay this is what this is what you think of when you hear Baghdad but for the rest of us that's for Iraqis that's quite painful it's actually something I've thought about a lot recently that Baghdad or Iraq has become this kind of measure against which we we check all other conflicts and all other hardship and all other wars and it's sort of this like very fickle way that it's used um, as a kind of cautionary tale. And it just felt like I really wanted there to be other associations with Baghdad. I really wanted people to hear this word and not automatically go somewhere negative, but to think about all, all the other things that it had meant for centuries before we came along. Um, well, as a resident of Baghdad, I truly want to thank you for 
trying to paint Baghdad in a different light than than we've seen it in the last 18, 20 years or so. Um, so thank you. Um, when doing the research for this novel, did any of these details uh, surprise you? Yeah, I mean, honestly, there was so much that I learned specifically towards the the end of the period that I wrote about during the Arab revolt against the British that I would have expected that I would learn about in school as someone who was raised in the British education system. I felt like I was really let down by the history that I was taught. And, you know, we'll learn about Henry VIII until the ducks come home. But like, God forbid we learn about anything negative in our history. God forbid you say a word against Winston Churchill. So I, one of the real lessons for me was being aware of what I don't know and being aware of how, you know, the history is supposed to be objective, but what history you're taught makes that learning environment subjective. And I, I really would like to see a lot more of our colonial history taught in British schools. And I think actually a, a month or so ago, Wales actually introduced a part of the curriculum, and I think it's still optional, where uh, children can be taught about colonial history. So that's really positive to see. And, you know, if they're looking for a fictional novel to help them <laughs> teach Welsh people about our intervention in Iraq, then uh, I can recommend one. <laughs> now it's it's interesting that you you speak about uh, the education system in Wales and if if the Welsh want to learn more um one of the things that I found interesting in the watermelon boys uh was the fact that you featured the the character Carwin uh a Welshman and as you said a reluctant soldier in the British army would you be able to tell us why it was important for you to include this character and draw his path from Wales to Egypt to Iraq? It's hard to pinpoint, actually, when Cadwin first came into being. I I knew I wanted there to be a British, a soldier in the British army that uh, Ahmed and his sons, their storylines intersect with, and I thought that would be quite an interesting moment to explore. And I resisted the temptation of having that person be the antagonist and maybe that was initially to, because I wanted the Welsh character to be someone who I could write with the Welsh background that I have and informed by that background. And therefore, I would default to somebody that was maybe someone sympathetic. But actually, I end, I, I'm quite happy that I made that decision because I found it much more interesting rather than having, you know, this British antagonist and an Iraqi protagonist and having them at loggerheads. It was quite interesting for me to have a subjectively good Welsh soldier and a good Iraqi soldier and father. He was not a soldier for very long in the novel. And having these two characters who are both trying to do the right thing, but ultimately one of them is on the wrong side. And so that meeting of the two characters, I felt, was always going to happen and was always going to be poignant. And the fact that they meet and it's not this kind of Hollywood reinterpretation of what two good people from different ethnicities meeting on opposing sides of a conflict should be like. At the end of the day, they're not going to meet and be the best of friends because one of them is occupying the other's country. And so that for me was more interesting than uh, there is a British antagonist of sorts 
and actually an Iraqi antagonist of sorts. But I found it more interesting to examine how people who view themselves as good can end up making the wrong decisions and falling into a very difficult path that they struggle to live with. So that is kind of how I knew there was going to be this Welsh slash British character meeting Ahmed. And um, then I sort of traced it back to what what battalions were actually in Iraq? What was their route to Iraq? Where were they trained? Um, and that I knew was going to be Karwin going to Gallipoli and then to Egypt and then to Iraq. Uh, initially in my first drafts, I had left out his training, his trip to, his trip to, they sort of recovered in Egypt after fighting in Gallipoli. So I'd left out that whole, um, arc, but, yeah, I added it later when it seemed like Cadwin was becoming more significant and his his Welsh influence in this very Iraqi story, as I see it, was poignant. Almost from the reverse perspective of what we're used to. So what we're used to in terms of English language fiction, which would be the story focusing on a British a British person, a British soldier. If it's a lot of historical fiction I've read would be a British woman who's this adventurous go get em type with the Arab backdrop or the Arab flavor. So this for me felt like subverting that where you have this overarching Arab Iraqi story with the kind of exotic taste being the Welsh character. So that was kind of a satisfying subversion to write. Well, it's interesting you, you speak about the uh, Welsh influence um, because I wanted to ask you, you grew up in Wales and spent most of your life there. But your writings are imbibed with a real closeness and warmth to Iraq. Growing up, what did Iraq mean to you and your identity? Honestly, um, I've spoken about this before, and it's it's sort of a hard truth that I grew up speaking Welsh as a second language, um, participating in all the cultural events, not just participating, but actually leading them. Um, and yet I was still always cast as this outsider, this exotic flavor, this person who we ask what their hair is like at any given opportunity. And so I was kind of defaulted into this identity as an Iraqi because ethnically I'm half, I'm just as British as I am Iraqi. But you know, there's a lot to be said about how you look and how that is interpreted by your peers and your, your teachers. And it it was never really an option for me to be anything but Iraqi. And I say that as a proud Iraqi and as someone who wouldn't really want to be robbed of that, but also as someone who recognizes now that I'm older that I was never really given the freedom to explore my identity in its many facets. And so, like I said, I was defaulted into this identity as an Iraqi and really just embraced it. Uh, head on and I mean it resulted in this novel which when I think about it I don't think there are many people who could have written it in the sense that I'm both Welsh and Iraqi and had grand great-grandparents who fought on either side of this conflict so I, I, I like to look back at it objectively and think what if but at the end of the day um, this was the result so I can't be too unhappy about it. I mean, I will be too unhappy about it if I ever see my teachers and those peers again, but I can't ignore the the richness that came from it. 
Well, if any of them are listening, uh, they're they're more than able to go pick up a copy of your book uh, and just uh, realize uh, what an achievement you've got with this novel. Speaking of writing, Ruqayya, what would you recommend to budding Iraqi authors who might look to you and hope to achieve your success? Aim higher. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we don't mean financial success here. <laughs> I mean... <laughs> Um, my advice would be to reach out to authors, uh, agents, publishers, anyone, anyone who have any remote connection to reach out and ask for help. Not everyone will offer you that step up, but those that do can really make a massive difference um, and can help you just to make small changes in your pitching process or in your title or in how you approach people, or how you interact online. And it can really make a difference. Also, a couple of things that I've learned and that I'm trying to implement in my current uh, writing process is one, don't be too precious about what you've written or about having a critical eye or criticisms in general. Like one of the things I was really happy with was that when I when I shared the Waterman Boys with friends or with uh, my agent or with anyone who would give me advice, I expected to feel a bit protective of it, especially such a personal story. But really, I was I was so keen on it being historically accurate, of not being cringeworthy, of not having any mistakes in it. And of being able to really hold my head up when I share this book later on, years down the line, that the need for it to be a good piece of work really trumped everything else. And I think that's a quality that I didn't think I would have, to be honest, but I'm very glad that I'm able to implement that. Um, but also to not be afraid to, this is more further down the line when you get to the publishing process, but not to be afraid to push back when you think that they're wrong, especially if you are writing within an industry like I am, where it's overwhelmingly white, where you are the authority on this Arab voice, this Iraqi narrative, whatever it is you're writing about, that sometimes you need to push back and sometimes you need to put your foot down on the fact that you are the authority on this story or on this culture or religion or terminology. And uh, I think that's something that I can say, I don't boast too much about, you know, what I've written, but I'm, I'm, I can say I'm proud of the fact that I know when I need to stand up for keeping the voice authentic and um that's something that I think we shouldn't lose as Iraqi writers, as diaspora writers, as writers of color, that we need to remember that at the end of the day, we're not just writing for a white audience, we're writing for our own audience as well. And it, we shouldn't remove that authenticity for the sake of palatability. And rightfully so, you should be uh, quite proud. Um, and given that you say we Iraqis are authorities when we speak, do you think it is important for Iraqis to write more? I don't think anyone can accuse Iraqis of not writing enough. But the part that I'm really interested in is English language Iraqi fiction, whether it's originally in English or translated. I think there's a real need for something to challenge the market that's out there already that, as I kind of touched upon earlier, that really centers these white characters be they soldiers in the latest uh, war in Iraq or historical fiction heroines who are kind of there to contradict the oppressed, struggling, ugly uh, 
Iraqi women or Arab women that are the backdrop for these heroines and are there to make them look better. So I'm really quite passionate about there being alternative options and changing what the, that market looks like. If you if you go onto any bookstore or Amazon and you you look for fiction set in Baghdad, it, it's it's improving in the last few years, but there's still so much interest in these soldier stories that I really I, I don't want to watch as movies and I don't want to read as books. And unfortunately, they sell really well and they're commercial and they're saleable. And I think we should really <laughs> try and outsell them and uh, drown out their voices with our own. Thank you, Ruqaya. Would you be able to give us a sneak peek and tell us what you're working on now that we should look forward to? Um, you'll have to excuse how poorly I describe it because I, ha- I haven't really talked about it much. I'm working on a novel that's sort of near future fiction slash thriller slash dystopian fiction. It's a bit of all three and it's not quite sure where it's going yet. It's set about 10 years into the future in the UK as a supposed socialist party comes to power, but who actually have Islamophobic intentions. And slowly, little by little, they introduce these these laws that make it very difficult for Muslims to be Muslim, to, to participate in society without completely assimilating or disappearing. Uh, so anyway, this piece of fiction will, is not with a publisher yet. I'm still editing it, um, but I'm hoping it'll be out in 20, uh, maybe early 2023. It's quite a long process, the whole thing. So, Thank you, Raqaya. I mean, uh, I'm definitely looking forward to it. Um, thank you also for taking the time to speak with us today. Um, and finally, thank you for writing The Watermelon Boys, which was an extremely enjoyable novel. Thank you. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. And I'm very happy that you enjoyed The Watermelon Boys and that it's it's kind of gaining traction with an Iraqi audience, which is just a pleasure for me, to be honest. That's excellent. Um, is this something that you're working on translating to Arabic? It's something I I want to be translated into Arabic. It's not really something that the author has the author has any role in exactly. But I know that there are a couple of people, a couple of well, there's one freelancer who is pitching it. She's translated the first few chapters and is pitching it to an Arabic language publishing house. And I also know somebody else who is working on a translation. So I'm optimistic that if it's if it doesn't happen immediately, um, then it might on the back of of my next book, which I'm hoping will kind of I'm hoping with a bit more of a commercial second book that it might have an effect, kind of knock on effect on the Watermelon Boys and the translation of it as well. Once again, thank you, Rukaya. Thank you. Please be sure to check out The Watermelon Boys, available for purchase at your local bookstore or online. And follow Ruqayya on Twitter at Ruqayya Azuddin. That's it for this week's episode. Be sure to follow us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify to receive notifications about a new episode from Araqi Voices. Until next time, take care. <laughs>